So you got a whole uh, alpha team now, don't you? But you, but you have a wealth of knowledge that is beneficial to a lot of people, and it we can move the needle. How often do you hear a hunting podcast? We talked about this. People relate to this. Welcome back, everyone. I have got the great Travis T-Bone Turner uh, on with me today. And uh, dude, I have to say, you're one of my, if not my favorite, one of my favorite uh, guests on the podcast, dude. It's uh, it's great to have you on. Man, I appreciate it, Aaron. Always a pleasure. I I, uh, I love chit-chatting with you and sharing, a, 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 I guess, a campfire, so to speak. Oh, yeah. I was actually telling some of the uh, people in the office here, um, you know, I, I, you're a little bit older than me. How old are you now? I'll be 55 in August. Yeah, that that tracks. So, like rewinding, I remember uh, watching, you know, the real tree road trips and everything else. But you guys had like a 3D shoot. Uh, I think there was a pond, and you were. I think you were shooting a bear whitetail hunter too. Old old school. You you brought that thing out. I can't. That that video's got to be 20 years old. You you remember what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was back in, like, 99, 2000, around Monster Bucks 10 or whatever. Yeah, we can't, that's actually the, <laughs> that's where we came up with the the T-Bone character, actually playing a sidekick with Jeff Foxworthy. Oh, no kidding. That's funny. Uh, well, yeah. I, 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 again, I've had you on before, but it's been a little while. You know, my, my thing with... Uh, uh, what's, what's nice with Travis, I mean, he T-Bone's been in the industry forever, but you've shot tournaments, you've hunted quite a bit, you're really high level, you know, as far as tuning, working on bows, everything else, uh, you know, wealth of knowledge. Um, you know, so I wanted to t- talk about a lot, you know, it's that time of the year, right? Like people are putting their boat, you know, getting their arrows dialed in, broadheads, and you and I seem to parallel pretty dang close, I think, on our thought processes from what I, you know, follow along and us talking. Um yeah. What do you think, like out of the gate, what do you think has changed the most since you've started doing this as far as technology goes? Like, so what, what's something like some of the different things you've looked at and were like, wow, I didn't, didn't expect this. Well, uh, I guess ar- archery wise, um, one of the things I guess I would throw it into the archery category is laser range finders. That's one thing. And then of course, trail cameras. But then if you, if you're just solely talking about archery, mechanical broadheads that they've, you know, uh, since I started, there was no mechanical broadheads back when I first started hunting. And then now, you know, they're probably at least easily 50% of what people shoot, if not more. I, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but, um, yeah, that, that's changed quite a bit. And then, then, uh, you know, the, the speeds have grown quite a bit and the efficiencies of the bows that that's, that's something you know each year i scratch my head like well what are they going to come up with now but it seems like the speeds may not be growing by leaps and bounds but they're making bows that are extremely shootable at those speeds and or extremely quiet so uh yeah i i love just absorbing all the innovation there's um you know everything's progressed rest uh stabilizer systems you know, the way we balance bows, uh, siding systems, you know, all, all of the above has progressed quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. And I think that uh, I, I, you know, make jokes about it because I, I'm hunting with a longer bow right now or what would be considered this day and age longer, which is like 37 and change. But I've always liked that 35, 36, 37 is a little bit long, but, you know, back 20, 
years ago or more, that was actually a shorter bow um, or or not a short bow. 36, 7 inches was kind of your standard length. And then it, you know, Matthews had an MQ 32, you know, what? And, and, and then that shorter bow dynamic and the longer eyes or shorter limbs, like technology has been crazy, like you said. But overall, the, the biggest thing I, I think is, and I agree with you, Three three thirty three three twenty was like a barn burner years ago. Now that's kind of a slower bow, and some of the bows now will have six and three quarter brace height and an IBO of three forty. I mean, those are the things like I've really noticed and the shootability of them, like you said. But when it comes to like tuning and the questions and things I get, you sent me a video the other day I did on like fletchings and everything else. Like you know, for for most people. They get kind of, I think they maybe put too much stock into a lot of different things where, you know, accuracy is key, but how much, like, what's your standard, what do you suggest to guys? Like when somebody messages you, like, what's your standard setup that you kind of offer to people? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we can, we can dissect this big time. You know, I was thinking about it before we was going to do this podcast or as doing podcasts, you know, on a weekly basis, like it seems like, um, Definitely arrow uh, over the last couple of years and FOC and the weights and, you know, four-fletch versus three-fletch. There's all, you know, kinds of uh, d- different rabbit holes to go down. And it seems like um, the archery industry and or arrow selection and spine and all that, it's, uh, which is good for, the, it's good for archery because we're exploring different things. But it seems like it's uh, paralleling like the rifle industry where everybody's trying to pick the best cartridge, whereas, you know, fact of the matter is, you know, accuracy is the key to, to all that, you know, whether you're using a, you know, a hundred grain bullet or, you know, a 250 grain bullet, you know, there's different, different ways to hash out and dissect things. But for me, um, I always like to try to have a, you know, testing and seeing is believing and, uh, you know, your accuracy is always going to win and confidence is that, you know, the biggest thing is what you have confidence in and, you know, what you can group the best with and what you're most accurate. But um, just me personally, I I prefer a three-fletch versus a four-fletch. Um, uh, at the end of the day, it seems like we went away from four- or five-inch fletchings or veins and got down to three-inch and two-inch and two-and-a-half-inch. And, um, you know, the, the reason for doing so is to lighten up the rear of the shaft and to have less drag there or just enough drag so that, you know, you're steering the, the arrow, whereas um, I like a three-inch parabolic low profile. The higher profile to me seems to have a little more flap in the wind. Um, it, it's not, you know, it, it catches more um, side-to-side wind, the higher profile that you have, as well as it seems like we've done some testing and, you know, like you get down near the target and let someone rip one past you, it seems like it has a little bit, more noise the higher it is whereas the the way i kind of look at the fletching is surface area how much surface area there is and then you can change how much drag there is based off of the degree of offset that you have back in the the rear of the shaft so um, with four fletch you tend to run into more clearance issues if you have a cable system that's kind of close and or you know a drop away with the um or, or with the uh crossbar across the top you you just run into more clearance it's harder to fletch it costs more i mean you know if if we're just checking off the pros and cons 
I think you can do just as good, if not um, check off more pros with a three three fletch than you can with a four fletch. Yeah, and that's it's... my thought. And, and then always, it, always for a release shooter shooting a shoot through style rest, I always recommend air into the too stiff side, uh, meaning like, or I, I say too stiff, or uh, you, in my opinion, you really can't have too stiff, but too weak is definitely a problem, which I think everybody will agree with that. But, um, you know, make sure that you have enough spine to um, absorb the energy that the bow's producing. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you on the, the weak to stiff side of things. It's a nightmare getting a weak tear out, a stiff tear. I, I mean, I think, I mean, you... We'll get into that here in a few minutes. Um, but when you when you were talking about like the fletching, I used to shoot four fletch a lot, like die hard. And then the more testing I've done, you know, obviously I've gone back to three fletch. Um, I just, you know, every it's it's all like like you said, it takes longer. Obviously, it costs more money. But just straight up groups, I I was not, you know, Gillingham's a big four fletch guy, but I I have not seen like a standard. 2.6 or like two and three quarter three fletch with a little offset, maybe a little helical. It, it, I have found recently, you know, over the last few years, like I, that, that is a hard system to beat. Now the profile of the vein, the material of the vein, obviously there's a ton of different options. What, what veins are you using right now? Like, what do you prefer? There's a, there's a lot of different veins out there that are good and, and that's not necessarily as important to me, I'm using the Flex Fletch. Um, I've shot them for tournaments years ago. I think they have the best memory, meaning like you can wrap them up in a rubber band, leave them in a 75-80 degree room, take the rubber band off, and they bounce back. So if you have where you, you know, zip through a target or they get wrinkly, they have such a memory that they'll bounce back straight. Um, I like that about them. Plus, they're they're wider at the base and then they're narrower at the top. So there's a lot of aerodynamic aerodynamically engineered that goes into them um they're they're stiff but they're not too stiff um extremely lightweight um one thing you know i think we all agree on you know if you're trying to you know get the most out of your era and and help the foc you can do so by the light the the what you shave in the back you double up in the front meaning like if you shave one grain you're basically gaining two grains in the front so um, they're lighter weight, um, good material, been around for years, um, so I, I, I like them. Now, you know, there are some good things about the other veins. Uh, the ease of fletching an AAE is, is uh, you know, second to none. They have a really wide base. For the beginning archer, I have no problems with someone, you know, using those. Uh, they are a little heavier, quite a bit heavier, actually. Um, the tack veins, you know, I know Levi and a lot of the tournament shooters are shooting those, and I, I shot them for a couple years, like them. I love the rigidity of them and the stiffness of them. Um, ha, I've been, I had some problems with them in colder temperatures, you know, getting on the brittle side, and they, if they are bent up, then they stay bent up, meaning they don't bounce back. As, that, that, those are the two things that I had noticed that was the, the, the problems, I guess you could say, or the cons about them. I do like the fact that they're so stiff to the fact that I almost feel like it's cleaning out a wound channel, if that makes sense, like a double set of broadheads, so to speak, because they're so rigid they don't fold down. So if you're blowing through or getting a complete pass through that, you know, it could potentially, you know, give yourself a little bit added hemorrhaging because the veins are so rigid that it's, you know, kind of clearing out the hole, so to speak. 
I don't know how you measure that, but nonetheless, it you know it makes you think like you're doing more damage. So that I put that in the positive category. Yeah, and I I've uh, oh the two point six inch hybrids, the two seven five drivers, uh, that three inch Silent Night, and then. Uh, uh, Bill with Iron Will made a little bit higher. It's basically the hybrid material out of a, a Max Hunter vein. Um, l- l- not what I normally shoot. Um, the higher profile vein is usually not one that I'm, I don't like like them as much normally. But the three inch Silent Night, the 275 driver and that AAE hybrid um, are the ones I've been shooting the most. But I, I don't like, um, you know, I did a podcast yesterday with Bill with Iron Will and we were just talking about the pros and cons of fixed blades, mechanical, stabilizing. You know, they, a lot of guys will will try to shoot the smallest vein humanly possible on the back end, whether that's with a mechanical or a fixed. Uh, but the stabilization of that, I've kind of went from one end of the spectrum to the other through my, you know, last whatever, 20, 30 years of shooting where I remember those big five-inch Marco veins, you know, game getter oh, twos yeah. and yeah. <laughs> That, that's you and I aren't that far apart in age. I mean, that's what you had. Um, oh yeah. And, and you'd have, you know, well, 12 to 15 inches of vein on the back of, uh, an aluminum, you know, twenty three fifteen or whatever. And that was what you had back then. That's right. That's right. You don't know what you don't know, you know, cause it, <laughs> there's not, not very many choices. And then it, and it, it shot well. Um, it just sounded like a, you know, a freight train coming down through there. It was really moving some air around, so it was extremely noisy. And, you know, some of the best groups and stuff that I can remember, may, maybe, maybe my memory is a little foggy, but, you know, four-inch feathers have, have, you know, done really well for myself, and five-inch feathers as well, too. It's just, you know, the cons there, they're, you know, they get beat up. They're not waterproof as well as, uh, you know, they're just really loud in flight, so... Um, you know, it's a give and take. You you, you want, um, and you know, you was talking about flex flex veins. Like um, I, I I've tried the Silent Night, and I know that they gear they they say that they're more quiet. But man, I've seen that those parabolics, the the FFP three three inch um, is a is a lower profile. I've seen that it's quieter. Or to to our ear and what test what redneck testing we do, it seems like it's quieter and. Uh, has a lower profile, so I'm 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 actually digging it a little better than I am the the Silent Night because it's uh man I would agree I'd agree with you that uh, the parabolic compared to the shield cut it seems like the shield cut is always louder uh, yeah as a rule of thumb yeah and uh, except for the tack vein which the tack vein is not like your traditional it's more like a slope off it's not really like a traditional shield cut so it's just like a a, a I don't know. It's it's a cross between a shield and a and a parabolic, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Mm, I think too, where that tail comes up, like on a Silent Night, where you might be getting that noise or the flutter. Um, yeah, those tack veins are so stiff. If there was going to be a flutter, that stiffness may take a lot of that out. That's right. That's right. Uh, you, you you might be exactly right. And I haven't had a chance to try the iron wheel veins. I have seen them and. But I haven't had a chance to try them yet. Well, we do the same redneck texting you do. I just go stand behind the bale or somebody else does, and then we wing arrows at a different target, and you listen, and that's about it. Like when, whether that be broadheads or your veins or whatever, we we just, I'm, I just figure if I can hear it in the differences in noise, a deer or an elk can definitely hear the differences. And after that, I don't really, I don't have like sound meters or anything. I just use my ears. 
Right. That's the way we're, we're doing it as well. And then, you know, I'm, I just basically, you know, on, on all decisions on things, it's not like all of them won't do a, a great job. It's just what you have confidence in. And then, you know, you, you know, seeing is believing. So, uh, you know, when you're behind the bow and, you know, you're trying to execute the shot, you, the more times that you can check off the confidence box, the more accurate and more deadly you're going to be. Oh yeah, for, for sure. Well, when, when like, um, the, the, you know, in the last little while, there's been the, this, the crazy, you know, crazy FOC ranch ferry, you know, 600, the bone breaking stuff from the Ashby foundation. I mean, okay. You know, I, I don't, I'm more of a happy medium guy, like just shoot around 280 feet per second. And, you know, I, I don't get too wrapped up. It's kind of like far, right and far left, uh, you know, in politics, when you get so far one way or the other, you're kind of a wacko. So I don't listen to you anyway. Um, when you set these arrows up, um, you know, the, the, the fixed blade, the mechanical portion of a lot of this, where you hear with the fixed blade, I, I, it takes a lot to go through the T of a scapula or a leg bone and specifically a shoulder knuckle. And so the big question is obviously, you know, with a mechanical, you're losing penetration, but with a fixed, what's your thoughts on the mechanical fixed stuff and arrow weight and all that? Okay. Um, the, uh, I, I, I think I'm probably a, a lot on the same page as you, meaning like if everybody gets so fixated on the leg bone, you know, more than, more than likely, depending on the position of the leg, if you, if you're hitting it there, you're in trouble anyway. So you don't you don't set a in my opinion you don't set your bow up for failure, you know ideally, you know I'm going to revert back to accuracy wins. You know we're we're setting things up for a perfect shot. However, you know uh, whatever it's going to take to go through that, um, you know knuckle bone or you know scapula is not as hard nowhere near as like going through a leg bone or the knuckle or anything like that. If you're setting it up to go through that. There's not a lot of good stuff behind that anyway, you know, as far as the vitals and such. So let's look at it on the other end of the spectrum. Everybody focuses on that. Um, so you're thinking of getting a like an inch and a quarter or inch and an eighth cut broadhead. By all means, we know that if you're just strictly, if, if the one column of penetration, we all know heavier is going to be better. We know single bevel is going to be better. You know, the Ashby Foundation has proven that. Nobody's disputing that whatsoever. However, there are a lot of other categories when setting up a bow that are equally as important, like, uh, you know, the speed of the bow. It doesn't have to be fast. I'm just saying we're just measuring the speed. You know, you don't want to go 220 foot a second at um, a 1,000 grain arrow or, you know, um, you, you, can, you can build an arrow to where you're actually checking off uh, you're good in most all of those categories. Um, and the way I approach that, and I'm sorry if I'm just talking in circles, but I, you know, within all this conversation, I think we'll probably cover a lot of things. So I try to shoot, or I tell people when they're setting up a bow to shoot as much pounds as you can handle, uh, comfortably and comfortably means, you know, you're able to pull it back and you're able to anchor and you're able to shoot it, uh, consistently. So let's just say that ends up being 72 pounds. So you're shooting the most weight. And then you start with, let's just say, a uh, an arrow that weighs 475 or 500, just ballpark. Then you see where the speed is on that. 
And as long as that speed falls within, um, in my opinion, like a 260 to about a 290 is acceptable because that's a speed that's, you know, we've seen through if you're shooting 320, 330 foot a second, you really have to shoot beyond like 45 yards to see any uh, difference in your pin gap that much. And yet th those in anything that you shoot that far, you're going to be getting a good range on anyway. You know, I don't think there's too many people that are going to need the speed at 300 and, uh, you know, at a at a 60-yard shot at an elk or a mule deer. You know, again, I'm not a Western hunter per se, um, so I don't want to speak out of context. But my thoughts are is you're going to have a good range if you're shooting that far. So, uh, you know, the, the speed and the, range, the yardage estimation is not as critical as if uh, what you're going to need it between the difference of 28 and 30 yards. So... That 280 seems to be, like you had mentioned, that that's kind of my threshold. I try to build the heaviest arrow at the poundage, the heaviest poundage that I can comfortably shoot and it achieve 280. And then once I've got that and see how efficient the bow is, then I go back and manipulate the FOC to where I want it to be. I try to shoot for 15 to 18.5%, somewhere in there seems to be a, a good, um, you know, as far as forgiveness, um, yeah shoots better in the wind, uh, tunes real easy. Uh, that seems to be uh, where I try to thrive. Now, that that doesn't mean that you've got a sucky arrow if you end up at 14% uh, FOC and you're shooting everything that you want. You know, if you've got uh, everything in the categories that you want that's, that's shooting good, then by all means, if you end up at 470-grain arrow with a 14.3% FOC, uh, and you're grouping, you know, very well, and your confidence is high, then by all means, I think that's a home run for you. There's not a set, and, and I know you'll agree with this. I mean, I, if, you, if someone's going, and we're talking about the meat and potatoes of the guys, you know, somebody that's a 27-and-a-half to a 30-inch draw that's able to pull, you know, 65 pounds to 75 pounds, the meat and potatoes of most bow hunters, if you can achieve all those things of 280 feet a second, uh, 450 to 525 grain error, and a FOC of, you know, say, you know, 14 to 18, I think you've got something there. But now you can you can be off on some of those numbers, and it doesn't mean that you're going to fail. It just means it's you're not as high ranking in those categories. So I would tell someone in that meat and potatoes type of archer you know, to be, you, you can get a little more concerned as you get down to a 400 grain arrow. I think that's a little bit too on the light side as far as a good, well-rounded North American game killing arrow, if, if all that makes sense. No, I agree. And I, I, um, I get it. Like people want to have their, the best possible arrow set up and broadhead, you know, when they head out West or they're going whitetail hunting and, and, but I, like you said, when you start checking boxes, um, you can find, you know, as an example, I will have someone that will message me, Hey, I have a 475 grain arrow. It's shooting 284. Um, should I set up a different arrow for antelope, uh, a faster arrow? Now me, me personally, I don't really do that. Um, I might have one bow set up with one arrow. Like right now I have pro comps on one arrow and axis on another, or excuse me, on one bow axis on another. But I, I, I personally feel that if you, let's say went from 285 to 300 to 305, you know, if you, for that 15, 20 feet per second, 
you're losing, you're checking more negatives a lot of times than you are positives. Sometimes anyway, it's going to be harder to tune. Uh, Your bow is going to be louder. And when your bow is louder, you know, that little difference in speed is not going to help you enough to reinvent the wheel, set up a new, you know what I mean? Like do all of these different things. I just, I'm always around 280 and I don't really focus on that. What are your thoughts on some of those things? Like, do do you recommend that or just get one arrow and buy five dozen and turn the internet off and just go shoot? I I absolutely agree with you on that. Meaning like, I don't think the, you know, the, the advantages of to shooting to, you know, say 310 feet a second versus 280. Um, I don't see the advantages, meaning you're going to, you're going to suffer in some, you know, there's a give and take in everything. So, um, I think there's a lot to be said that so many people look at the internet and social media, and they spend more time studying. Um, and and you can, uh, you, I'm sure you agree with this, and, and I do too. Is like once you have learned and you become one with the bow, and you're used to seeing the cast of the arrow at 275, 280 feet a second, you'll do yourself a better job of being a killing machine and a confident, accurate killing machine knowing that you're one with the bow rather than saying like, oh, I've got this hunt coming up. Let me tweak with things and and set it up to 310 foot a second because it can mess with your psyche of like, oh, I've I've shot, you know, 2,000 shots or 3,000 shots or 10,000 shots with this 280 foot a second, but I've only got 150 shots under my belt at 310. It doesn't mean that you're not going to kill the critter and, you know, it still can do a great job, but there's a lot to be said for being one with the bow almost like, you know, I've, I've, a baseball player has thrown this baseball tens of thousands of times, and all of a sudden you're going to put him in a softball game. Well, he's, he's a little, you know, he's a little out of sorts because he's not used to that. So um, I, I think there is something to be said for, you know, especially with a fixed pin shooter, learning the cast, learning the gap, learning what you can and can't get away with with 280 feet a second. And I don't think that you're gaining, uh, you know, much at all by going to that 310 foot a second. Just like you said, it's noisier, uh, it's harder to tune, it's louder. Um, um, there's just so many things that you're going to be giving up. I think it's better to just stay at 280, something that is, a, you know, building a good, like I mentioned before, a North American, you know, anything that you're going to, uh, you know, go shoot that you're very confident in because at the end of the day, Going back to another question that you had, accuracy is going to win. So many times people focus on, God, I need a, you know, I need a 700 grain arrow to go through that leg. Well, let's let's look at it this way. Let's, you've built an arrow that weighs 500 grains, and you've got a, you know, a three blade or a, a something with a mechanical that's a three inch cutting. I mean, a two inch cutting diameter, and so it's a large cut. It's not like your smaller fixed blade. Just as equal as you got to worry about that shoulder, if you're inaccurate or that animal was to move and you go through the guts, I would have more confidence knowing that I've got three blades in a two-inch cut going through the guts than I did an inch and a quarter single bevel 650-grain arrow going through the guts so that I can do more massive damage even though I'm going through stomach and guts and you know uh, intestines and maybe clipping the backside of a liver. I've got a better chance, a way more percentage, of having a accurate aerodynamic mechanical that potentially is is you got just as much chance of hitting in the back as you do as hitting in the leg. So that has to be considered too. Let's not always focus on I got to go through bone. I got to go through bone because 
you know, the only thing that you're going to be able to go through bone is an extremely heavy arrow, and an extra 20 grains is not going to be the deciding factor on going through a leg bone. No, it's it's not. And and this was one of the conversations I had yesterday with, with Bill when, you know, obviously he's a big, you know, fixed blade guy, but, and, and I, I'm back and forth, depends on the person and what Arrow and Bo set up, you know, what, what they have to offer. The, the one thing with hunting or guiding and getting to shoot a lot of stuff, more than most often, the story I'll get or what I'll see or whatever is they hit the animal back and back meaning diaphragm, liver, small and large intestine, stomach. Um, when you have, and, and that's a larger percentage of the, the, also the animal is, is those parts of the body rather than a leg or a, or a shoulder, so to speak. Um, finding if you hit something and don't get pay, great penetration in the shoulder, leg, things like that, more than most likely, not always, the animal's going to be fine. They've got a wound. They're going to bleed a little. When you hit them back, um, the animal's not going to be fine and they are really hard to find or can be. So the more devastating damage or the more wound channel you have when you shoot something back is what I prefer personally, especially when I'm yep. tracking. Um, you know, and and mechanical or fixed, what, what do you prefer for the most part right now with technology, everything else the way it is? Well, I'm I'm not against either one, so I don't want, you know, you know, I, I want that to be said. At the end of the day, there are a lot of great broadheads out there and they will all do great uh they will you can all be successful if they're put where they need to be. So, you know, again, I I can't, I hate to keep harping on that and maybe that's just, you know, the term in archery in me, but accuracy is the most, you know, confidence and accuracy is the key cuz those are going to you know, again, we're shooting at a live animal, and I know, you know, shit happens, so to speak, but um, accuracy is the key. The, the, that's going to help you as far as your forgiveness and putting the broadhead of whatever choice you choose where it needs to be is going to be the, the, the most important thing, and is the, to me is the most important thing is the accuracy. But for the instances when they, you know, do take a step or they do are fidgety or you do go to nut city or you buck fever help, helps you, um, I personally, um, for for stuff that's from like an elk size down in the era setup that I'm shooting, I'm a, I have complete confidence in a mechanical, basically because of aerodynamics. It keeps my accuracy up, um, as well as the type of mechanicals that I do recommend are the rear deploying, so that the blades are already exposed. Uh, you don't have to worry about them. They just slide into place. It doesn't hinder the arrow of its energy, so you don't have to worry about them folding over themselves, deterring the path of the arrow, and losing its energy because it deterred the path of the arrow. Um, the rear deploying seemed to stay on track better, and even, let's just say, if they were glued shut or welded shut, so to speak, the blades are exposed, and it's just going to be a smaller cutting diameter broadhead, but it will you know, still be doing damage as it goes through there. So that that's the type of mechanicals I recommend is the, the rear deploying that slide into place. You know, the, the G5s, of course, the, you know, the Rage, the Severs, um, the Meat Seekers, you know, the, the one, the, the Kill Zone by NAP, there's, there's a good handful of them that are built pretty good, but those that are rear deploying are the ones that I recommend as well as the reasons for you keeping your accuracy up on those. That's, that's why I like those. 
Yeah, and I and I can speak for uh, T Bone here. I think and and say and 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 also make sure that people like neither T Bone nor I um, have an issue with either mechanical or fixed. So whenever I do these podcasts, a lot of time I'll get comments about them, and sometimes it's like, man, I hate mechanicals you know, fixed blades are the way to go. And if that's what you're comfortable with, and I think I can speak, Travis will tell you the same thing. Shoot what you're comfortable with. Like we're just giving you our thoughts and collective of experiences or whatever. There's nothing wrong with um, a fixed blade broadhead. The, uh, as I say that, again, generally like what, people will base their decisions off of maybe a bad experience or a friend's bad experience, meaning you hit the shoulder, you didn't get the penetration, you were shooting a mechanical and you go straight to shooting a fixed blade. Um, or, you know, or you hit something back and you never would have found it if you weren't shooting a giant mechanical. You know, shoot whatever you're comfortable with. But what I can say is when you hit something far back, which is generally, I don't know, T-Bone, what do you think? 80% of the time you hear I hit it far back, it's it's a high percentage. Yes. So when you hit something yeah, oh yeah. far back, I mean, that mega meat, um, which I shot a bunch. I, I, I shot those whitetail hunting a lot in, in pigs. Um, and I'm not saying this because you're on the podcast. Uh, Ryan Rotier, he's a big outfitter up in South Dakota. My wife was there. It wasn't a, it wasn't a great shot that I made on this doe, but that that mega meat that was the most devastating I've ever seen a broad most devastation I've ever seen a broadhead do. Now I had to put a follow up arrow uh, into it, but you know I shot it back. But you could hear this isn't a great thing, but you could hear the inside sloshing like it destroyed it. Uh, and I when it was taken off, if I would have hit that in the same spot with a inch and a sixteenth or one inch fixed blade broadhead, the outcome of that would not have been the same. There's just not as much devastation. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I have complete confidence in the mega meat, uh, for, you know, all those reasons, like, like we talked about, but like, I, you know, I want to go on record as saying it's not just that one there, there are other great, you know, broadheads that can do, uh, you know, a great job for you as well. So it's, it's, um, um, the rear deploying, the accuracy, um, you know, things happen and, and so to speak. But yeah, I, I, I just feel like, you know, it's, it's just a bigger hole. I mean, if you measure in, like we talked about surface area on a vein, you can do the same thing on a, on a, you know, a broadhead with three blades, you're getting 33% more cut than a two blade. Uh, the angle of the blade rather than it. So it's slicing, not chopping is a huge factor in penetration. Um, you know, all steel, that means a lot too. Um, and again, the, the the reason I I mean, like I say, I've got complete confidence in in a in a fixed blade as well. You know, you got to put it, no matter what you shoot, you got to put it where it counts. But the reason so many people are going away from fixed blade or why a mechanical is so popular is back in the day, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, um, you know, it, we would shoot our bows all summer long with field points, shooting very accurate, you know, 40 yards hitting a tennis ball every time, screw our broadheads on, and then all of a sudden, you 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 know, your group's opened up to a pie plate, a 6-inch, 7-inch, 8-inch circle, and you're like, confidence is at an all-time low because it's two weeks before season, and, you know, like, man, I can't hit nowhere near like I used to, and we all know it's just physics that 
a fixed blade broadhead on the front of your arrow is, you know, doing a lot of the steering. It's just like putting another set of veins on there. So, um, you know, through through years and years, you and I have had this conversation, but, you know, learning how to index and then also tune your broadheads, your fixed blade broadheads, will help your accuracy a tremendous amount as long as, you, you know, and, and then having the right spined arrow and higher FOC helps with the fixed blade broadhead. So there are ways, you know, that we can tune and make, you know, more so now than ever, we can make fixed blade broadheads, but with bows being more efficient and people trying to shoot faster and faster and faster, uh, again, that's where speed comes into a problem. You know, trying to make a fixed blade broadhead fly at 320 or 30 foot a second, you can you can pull some major hair out trying to get that to happen. I mean, it's just uh, with with us being not like machines, it magnifies the flaws of your form, and you have to have things tuned, and you have to have your arrows exactly right to make all those happen so therefore it can be frustrating and to the guy who doesn't have the time like you and I do and or the knowledge or the you know the experience under our belt you know it's going to be frustrating to a guy that's working in an office that's wanting to go on a hunt you know so that's what makes uh, mechanical so inviting and so um, uh, helpful to folks to be successful without able to put uh, the effort that you know, you and I are able to do so if that, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. So, um, we, you know, we talked a little bit, obviously we've talked about the broadheads and the veins, arrow setups, things like that. Um, when, uh, I have done some, you know, podcasts and videos, you've done the same, uh, how I build an arrow. Um, actually definitely check out, I did a full video on the, uh, revolution, the arrow tuner, um, check out T-Bone's got videos on that thing as well as far as building a straight arrow, concentricity, the run out, making sure everything's perfect on that. But as far as tuning the bow, um, the, the thing I try to explain is I actually set the bow up and then I tune the arrow. My, my Personally, I tune the arrow to the bow. A long time ago, I would buy whatever arrow and I would just guess the length and I would screw my or, you know, glue my... RPS insert and 125 grain tip, 100 grain, and off I went. But it wasn't as, I wasn't, it, there wasn't a lot of tuning going on other than maybe bumping the rest back and forth. And as I've learned more yoke tuning and then the dynamics of an arrow, things like that, you know, you can get to where you can do just about anything. Like you said, we have more time, right, and experience. So I can get a fixed blade to hit at 80, 90 yards uh, for the most part with my field tips. With that, though, comes when I talk to people, the tuning questions and my bear shaft tuning and my paper tuning. And I can't remember all the other crazy shit that I've heard, seen and tried over the years of like walk back and French tuning and a bunch of other stuff. What do you do? How do you generally, once your bow's set up and you've got that going, but how do you tune your arrow? Are you shooting through paper, bear shafts? What's your system? Well, um, yeah, I, I'm like you. I mean, there's so many people that talk about that, all of those different tuning methods that you talked about. Um, for for a confidence booster, is like I set my center shot, I eyeball it, you know, and of course you go like by the what the manufacturer says recommended, like a 13, 16 out. You 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 ballpark it, you set it, you eyeball it. You know, again, I mean, I'm sure that your trained eye, like my trained eye, it's where we're starting point, and then you paper tune it um, and I'm like you, you know, it used to be years ago, we used to just run the rest in or out. Don't be afraid to move it and you find out where it w wants to set. But, 
in this day and age, we've learned more about, like you said, yoke tuning or, you know, spacer shifting and aligning how the, the you know, the cam is rolling over and how it's, um, um, you know, the top hat's on a Matthew, the spacer's on a Hoyt, and then you have that tuning system with a Bowtech. But all you're doing is just shifting that over uh, to where you're aligning it. Um, I prefer that type of tuning myself because I want my center shot to be as close to the center of the riser as possible. I don't want it, you know, exaggerated out to the left or exaggerated to the inside, and then I'll manipulate it. I really like doing it best with the, you know, soft yoke system by yoke tuning. That was my, that's my favorite way. Um, but if it's a binary cam system, you you certainly can't do that. You have to shift the spacers. Um, so I get it bullet holing, and then I um, at 20 yards I shoot a bear shaft just to see if I'm in the ballpark, and then um, you know just to just to make sure it's a really really it's not the deciding factor. It's just a it's just a checking off the box of a confidence thing. It's like well that's happening, so therefore. I'm happy about that, so I can, you know, relax in my mind that they do hit. And then and then I'll just, uh, you know, group tune. I, I want to make sure, like, it, and I try to do it as far as, I shouldn't say as far as possible, but like a, a 40 yards, 50 yards. And if my bow is hitting behind the pin, um, and I, I know you know what that is, but to explain it to the folks listening, meaning like, you know, if you're executing a good shot, you know, a push-pull, you know, and not, not a punching-style shot, but your pin is never still. So if the pin is, um, we call it humming, where it's just moving around, and then it's almost like when the shot breaks, you know, you can't, if, if you're getting a good squeeze or a back-tension shot, you, you're not really watching the aeroflight, so you just, the, the the shot breaks, and then you can almost call your shot, meaning like, when the shot broke, I was at seven o'clock off of the dot. And then if your if your if your bow or, or the arrow is appearing behind where the pin, meaning like it's hitting behind the pin, knowing that if I was still and I was on a bench rest, that the arrow was always going to be hitting behind the pin, that to me tells me that it's a pretty forgiving setup and that the the the, the arrow is tuned. And then also it's always nice to have someone with a trained eye behind you to see how the arrows are flying and tracking and uh you know we're lucky to have slow motion photography so that you can nitpick uh you know the the flight of the arrow as well so um but that that's how i tune basically and then you know if if, if it's not hitting my skin that tells me that it's magnifying the flaws in my form and then i may need to tweak the rest ever so slightly or go back to the drawing board so you sounds like you do pretty much the same thing I do. I uh I did the level thing for a while, meaning throwing levels on my string and uh you know my arrow. And I'm not saying don't do that, and I have those, but man, I've always just done really well with eyeballing it starting out. Um, if your stabilizer uh, hole is center of your riser, I'll look down my string, the middle of my arrow, and then down the the stable or down the stabilizer kind of centering it up. I might throw a tape measure on, but I generally don't do that either. I just kind of wing center shot when I say that, um, down that stabilizer center of the stabilizer and the string. And then I, same with height, I just kind of eyeball it, um, yeah. for, for a starting point. Yeah. And I always like to, um, like with my center shot, um, most, all people are shooting drop away rest. I always set my drop away rest to where, when it's in the down position, it's just off the shelf, so it's not slamming into the shelf. And I like to get my arrow as close to the top of my hand 
as possible because just like in um, recurve shooting or anything, the farther the, the arrow is away from your hand, the more magnified the flaws in your torque, um, I mean the torque of your grip and the flaws in your form is going to be magnified. So if you've got, you know, to give somebody an illustration if they're listening to this, let's just say that, you know, the, the arrow is an inch and a quarter off the top of your hand, but yet you set the center shot up and you run the you run the rest way up high and you have a rest that ends up tuning out and your knock sets are set where it's two inches above your hand, any flaw that you have in your hand, whether it be too much heel, too much low wrist, too much high wrist, left torque, right torque, is all, or, you know, if you can't at all, uh, you know, if you have some can't in your hand, all that's going to be magnified because the arrow is floating up off of your hand farther. So I try to get the arrow as close to the top of my hand without the arrow, the drop away rest hitting the shelf if all that makes sense, and therefore that's that's my starting point, like you said, as an eyeball. And then, of course, you start at 90 degrees, and then you tweak from there. Basically, the way the cams track in the within in between the limbs coming down the center of the riser is going to dictate where your center shot is anyway. So, um, you know, when people or, or shops break out, you know, levels and or lasers and stuff, they, they are a way of showing you, but then... The bow, the bow, and the way you hold the bow is going to dictate where the bow wants to be shot. Not, not that laser, if that makes sense. Yep, it does. And 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 I'm glad we're talking about this. Just hopefully, you know, the redneck version of this without going off the deep end. I mean, I I really like Tim Gillingham, but sometimes it gets a little convoluted and confusing. Um, you know, when 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 he starts talking about tuning, and it's really once you learn like the the art of archery or the bow or, or it's tuning in general, it, it, it makes a lot more sense. I mean, the, the bottom line, you want your knock and your point to be in line when your bow's shot. I mean, that's a very redneck way to explain it. If it's yeah. going knock left or knock right, there's a reason for that. So sometimes when you're tuning someone's bow, when I say that, helping them tune, you can have somebody that grips their bow to a way to they will tear knock left no matter how stiff of an arrow you put on there. No matter what you do to that arrow, they'll tear knock left because of how they grip the bow. Or I've I've found this. Um, yes, I agree. And and I then you have to shim the cams over. You have to mess with the. I don't like messing with the cable guard too much, but more or less tension on the cable guard, uh, yoke tuning things like that. What you're doing, though, is because of that person's grip, if it's consistent, you are changing um, basically the cam leaner diet. And you'll be able to explain this better. But what you're doing is basically when that bow fires, using the technology of being able to shift the cams or whatever to compensate that person torquing their bow. And you might want to take it from here because I'm kind of screwing this up. No, I think you're doing good on that. And actually... Um, you know, something that I think a lot of people don't talk about, the reason it's we have to do that more now is, is uh, and this this goes way back, or, or it's a little bit of a deep dive. You know, back when we were, t- you know, you mentioned earlier, we talked about a short bow was 36 inches. Well, I can remember when the average was about 40, 41 back in the early 90s, you know, when you had the Browning Mirage. and The Ballistic Mirage. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, when you when you go back to that, you know, if you can look at the evolution of bows, bows back in the 90s and even into the early 2000s, the angle of the limbs were at a 45 degree angle. So that when you 
pulled the bow back, and uh, and a lot of your tournament bows are still that way. You know, the 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 angle of the limb and the limb pocket forced the the axle to axle to be 41, 42 inches axle to axle. Then when you pull the bow back, the cams were half the size that they are now, or even smaller. And then when you pull the bow back, you know the limbs had a quite a bit of bend to them. I mean, they would come down, uh, you know, a solid, you know, three, four, five inches. Well, when they come down, um, you, you know, the the apex of the string got real tight. So, you know, there's a misconception between the bows of today because we have parallel limb bows and we have sub-parallel limb bows. So when you draw a bow back now, the limbs don't really come together nowhere near as much as they used to. So even though the axle-to-axle on a bow, the, that's why we're able to shoot these short axle-to-axle bows because they don't flex like they did 20 years ago. They, they flex, but they don't flex you know, they don't have a six-inch cast, so to speak. So so at full draw, a 40-inch bow may have a 35-inch axle-to-axle at full draw, whereas today's bows, if you're shooting a 34-inch axle-to-axle bow, the limbs don't move as much. And then also, the cams are twice as high, uh, twice as size, so the apex is actually longer because when you have a small cam on a on a long axle to axle bow and you come back to full draw, the size of the cam is smaller away from the center of the axle, whereas new bows have these huge cams and the apex is measured where it comes off the top of the cam and that cam distance is, you know, sometimes two and a half, three inches from the center of the axle to the top of the cam. So even though if you're measuring axle to axle, it is quite a bit shorter than it was 20 years ago, the actual apex of the string is not that much different than what it was years ago. Does that all make sense? No, it does. And I, you know, when, what, what this, you know, what it boils down to really um, with what, you know, what it pertains to on the, the tuning side of things. Well, one, it was a nightmare tuning back in the day uh, compared to, I'm going to try to, I think this is going to sound horribly, you know, arrogant, and I'm not speaking for for Travis, uh, but I'm speaking for me. I think you and I having to deal with those things that long ago made us way better archers today because we didn't have the tech that that we do now. And so, with some of the things that you're talking about, with the release, it's hard to explain in words. Um, the dynamics of a bow 25 years ago and how much different they are. There was no string stoppers. There was no roller guards. Your your limbs were twice as long as they are now, and your your riser was short, uh, where now your riser's really long, limbs are shorter. I'm missing a few things, um, but, you know... We, well, my, well the, the point that I was trying... I was, I'm not to interrupt you, but no, the point ahead. that I was to was the farther... You know, just like we talked about the the arrow rest, you know, the farther the arrow is touching the rest off the top of your hand magnifies the flaws in your form. The same thing happens when you have the string off a large cam. Let's just say your cam is a six-inch diameter cam. I'm just throwing a number out there. But the the center of the axle to the top of the cam is, let's just say, two and a half inches or three inches. Well, as that gets taller, the wheel lean is magnified more. So therefore, that's why we're having to shim things more so than we did in the past. Because when you come to full draw on bows of today, um, you know it, 
because it's so far away from the axle, you get limb twist and or limb uh, and cam lean mm. because it's magnified so much. Whereas you didn't have that problem or you didn't see that nowhere near as much when cams were a lot smaller. In in my eyes, if there was a way to do it, you can't do it because you have to have large cams. You know, it, large cams help help sell bows. You know, when they're on the shelf, it's like, man, I want that one with that big ass cam. I want to have that. That's what I want. But when in all actuality, and you have to have that large cam because you have to have string take up to so that you can accommodate draw lengths. That's why you have to have such a large cam. But ideally, if you had a cam about the size of an orange, you know, a two inch cam on a parallel limb bow, uh, you know, that would be a, a lot more forgiving system. However, you know, um, physics wise and engineering wise, you just can't do that because you have to have the take up. So in doing so, one of the negatives or one of the problems with it is the larger cam has more wheel lean and or limb twips because of leverage, and that's why we have to space things out to get the to, to bring the the tuning back in. I hope I explained that right. I tried. <laughs> no, no, you did, and and really, if it just comes down to almost leverage, if you have a dinner plate up there, something the size of a dinner plate. Um, you know, the distance, let's just say from the axle to the top of that cam, the leverage of a dinner plate, you know, whatever the mathematical equation would be compared to if you put something the size of a teacup saucer, there's way more leverage because that dinner plate's so big, which cams now are about the size of a dinner plate. I may not have explained that very well either. Um, but what I can tell you is when you're going to tune, Nowadays, every bow's different. Every every there's all kinds of different from deadlock. Like back in the day, you had little plastic donuts, and you had a ton of them when you wanted to shim a cam over. And even recently, PSE and there's some other companies that still have that. Um, Hoyt has like the standard. I think they have three shims. When you shim that cam over, generally for right-handed shooters, I hardly ever have to shim a cam right. It's generally left. When you shim that cam over. But back when you had yokes on, but most bows don't now, when you had yokes, when you would twist the left yoke, what you're actually doing is putting cam lean. You're taking the top of that cam and twisting it over, where when you're shimming the cam over, you're not putting cam lean on it, and so to speak, when the bow is not at draw, but when you're shimming that over, that is basically putting that arrow knock in line with the point. I mean, I'm not explaining that that well. Um, no, you are. You are. <laughs> in my in my opinion, you are. Yeah. Well, you're, you're... Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get to where people understand why you do it because a lot of pro shops don't like shimming cams. It takes time. Um, yeah. But I can promise you, and I don't know what the ratio is, out of one out of every 10 shooters, let's say, you will not get an arrow stiff enough to take a left tear out unless you shift the cam over or put twists in your left yoke. The problem with yoke tuning, and I learned the hard way, you can derail a bow by putting too many twists or too much cam lean on on a bow. Yes. Have you done that? Did, am yeah. I the only one that was that stupid? I've done it a couple of times. You only do it once usually, though. <laughs> No, you can't. You can do it. Um, you, you usually, if if it's taken that much, then I, I would look for other, pro, uh, you know, other reasons or, or, or other problems that that you would need that excessive much. But yeah, you can if you're if you're not careful, you can uh, derail it. And and so many people get hung up on, you know, how Matthews used to 
tell you to put an arrow down the side of the cam and then make sure that the the arrow is tracking parallel to the string and you know if it's magnified off and so many people get hung up on putting the laser on there you know actually cam lean or a little bit of cam torque is not a problem as long as it's consistent as long as it's in the right place you know you shouldn't be you don't have to be concerned with the 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 cam being off a little bit um you know anything that in archery is repeatability and consistency so as if it's tuned and or flying correctly and or uh you know and you still have some lean to it that's quite okay now granted you don't want it bad enough to where it's derailing but as long as it, if it's got just a little bit of lean to it I, I wouldn't be concerned with it you're just wanting consistency to where it does the same thing every time so I, I know a lot of people get hung up on that meaning like oh my bow shoots good it's grouping good it's hitting behind the pin I'm very happy with it but man every time I put this laser on here my my cam is off to the side I get that a lot and I'm like don't don't worry about it. It's it's, it's fine. It, it as long as it's doing the same thing every time. Meaning, you know, it's same thing on a person's form. You know, if you anchor behind your ear and you stand on one leg, if you can do that exactly the same every time, then then do that. Most people can't, but I'm just explaining. As long as you can be like a machine, you know, by all means do that. But you know, I, I'm, I know I'm exaggerating about the form thing, but that that's the whole that's the whole thing that we're trying to get to is forgiveness and for the bow to be uh, consistent as well as us be consistent. That's what we're trying to uh, achieve. And I, I think where the derailing comes from is being a dumbass trying to shoot way too weak of a spine in my younger days. Cause I wanted to get more speed and not being able to, you know, a weak arrow is the, the demon, right? A weak arrow is like the, the bane of my existence trying to tune where a stiff arrow is much more tunable and you can get away with a lot more and will have generally better, not generally, pretty much always better group when you air to the stiffer side of an arrow. When you're going yeah. weaker and you're trying to cheat the system, you know, when somebody comes to my house and their cable guard is maxed all the way over, um, you know, they're, they, they've moved their rest as far as humanly possible, um, you know, to try to get a left tear out, you know, before I even look at the arrow, I pretty much can already tell he's at least more than most likely one or two spines too weak, probably one spine. And that may not yep. be his grip. That just means he's trying to get way more speed. He's trying to shoot too weak of an arrow to get more speed. Correct. Yeah. And, and a lot of shops that are um, you know, and I don't want to throw any shops under the bus, but a lot of uh, speed-hungry shops will do that, too. They'll try to put someone in a 400 or a 500 spine era and, you know, have them shooting too many pounds just because they want to impress the guy by popping it through the chronograph at 320, whereas, you know, I, I live by the same adage, a slow hit way better than a fast miss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they, back on the 3D course, uh, you know, I'd rather have a, you know, slow 10 than a fast five. And there's a I, lot of, I mean, with that today, like today, like the the thing is, is I would almost guarantee if somebody walked up to you and me separately said, build your ultimate arrow setup right now, they're going to be almost identical. I When I say almost, very, probably identical. Yeah. Very, very, very similar, and that, and that, you know, I mean that you and I seem to be on the same wavelength, but that doesn't mean that, you know, like, uh, you know, a lot of other 
technical information you get from out there is, is not correct. It, you know, it's, it's correct as well. It's just a, a, a little uh, a little different. It's not that one person has, you know, all the answers. It's just these are the things that seem to have worked best for you and I and things that we're happy with. And, you know, um, you, you know, we've proven, uh, trust me, I've set bows up and hunted with them all the way from 340 feet a second all the way down to, you know, 230 feet a second when we're talking compounds. And, um, you know, I, I always come back to that, you know, 260 to 290 is just a great sweet spot and just build the you know, the pull the most weight that I can pull comfortably. You know, you don't want to overbow yourself by no means, and then build that air to, to around that speed and, and you know, get a, a good FOC. I am a fan of FOC from a penetration standpoint and is one, but more so than that, it shoots better in the wind. wind. It's just, yeah, it's just so forgiving. Yeah, and when I when when Tebow when Tebow's talking about FOC, like I I I you know because I make jokes about it all the time of the extreme FOC. As I say that, like I shoot one seventy five up front, guaranteed. Like I don't hardly ever go lower than that. I might go up a little bit, but I try to shoot fifty grain components and a one twenty five grain head, roughly. Um, so 175 up front is considered extremely heavy by some and light by others, but that is the best all around. And I'm close to, t- I always tell people to stay somewhere between 13 and 18, right? That's my mm-hmm. percent. Anytime you go below 13, which some people may do that, um, you know, with shorter draw lengths, lower poundage, whatever, you don't want to, you know, be shooting up 150 feet per second or whatever. But for the most part, that is the best all around when you start checking boxes for me, meaning my bow's fairly quiet. I'm around 280 feet per second. I've got good point weight and component weight for bucking the wind. Um, you know, and, and again, tuning, easier to tune. Are you in the same, where are you at usually up front with total total weight up front? Yeah, that I'm, I'm right, right now I'm 215. I, I got 115 uh, insert outsert system as what well, and then a hundred grain broadhead. I I try to work everything off of a hundred grain broadhead just because it seems like that's where all the uh, innovation and engineering you know by far a hundred grain. Thank goodness you know in the last you know five to ten years we we're getting some great inserts uh, and insert manufacturing company you know whether you know the uh, you know Iron Wheel uh, Ethics a lot of these companies you know. Uh, that that's a big pet peeve of mine. I guess I was wanting and building, like I used to shoot the ACCs, and I would I had a machine shop here, you know, always machine me out some inserts that was I think they weighed like 85 or 100 grains. I, I never understood that we can have such high high dollar insert. I mean high dollar arrows and spend so much on broadheads and such, and then you got a 15 cent. Uh, insert component holding all things together. So I'm so glad that there are options out there with the uh, aftermarket insert companies that are building really precision stuff to where you can fine tune your FOC up front and have something that's really, really tough to help the structural integrity. But yeah, I'm running 215, 115 grain insert outsert system with a uh, 100 grain broadhead. Um, and that, that's it. You know, there are a lot of 125 grain broadheads, but it seems like, um, you know, the, the meat and potatoes are 80% or 75% of all broadheads are built off of a 100-grain frame. 
No, that's totally true. And one of the reasons I'm doing the 125 is I just have a crap load of 125 grain heads and points. And so I base it off a, off of that, but the, you know, the, the moral or the, the meat and potatoes of it, when, when you go and someone's like, man, I can only get 86 yards out of my, you know, out of my sight tape. Um, what can I do? It's like, well, if you're comfortable with your anchor point, right. A lot of it has to do with your peep height. Um, as far as how much you can dial down, um, you know, after that, they're like, well, I, I'm going to shoot a lighter arrow. And it's like, well, one 86 yards is a long freaking ways. Like I know techno, but hitting an animal at 86 yards. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is if we walk out to a 3d course, we take a hundred people and we throw a target out there at 86 yards, how many out of those hundred people are going to have a killing shot, cold bore first shot? Right now, that many. Um, Not many. N- no. And I mean, when I say this is like, hey, rather than focus on getting another 15 yards, why don't you work at being lethal from 86 in and focus more on deadly precision accuracy and that bow being a extension of your body? Um, be, I... Mm, and I don't want to bash long distance shooting. I like to shoot far away. I've taken some animals far away, but 86 yards is far. And you need to really take a self-assessment of how good can you shoot at 86 anyway? And should you be shooting any farther? And then I'm just pulling 86 out of my ass. But what what are your thoughts on some of that on the longer distance stuff and people, uh, you know, that just that in general, long distance shooting setups, things like that. Uh, yeah. Um, from a standpoint of practicing and, uh, you know, a, a fun, it's extremely fun. I think it hones your skills, but I think we all need to be realistic, man. We're shooting at live critters. They're not foam targets out there. you got, there's so many variables between lighting, between wind, crosswind, uh, a live critter. Um, you know, I agree 100% with what you said. Hone your skills to being lethal, you know, within an effective range. It doesn't take, you know, I mean, especially with a whitetail. I mean, I, I guess I'm a little more well-versed with whitetails, but you could have a whitetail feeding on acorns at 100 yards, and you could do everything right. I mean, bench rest accurate, hit a tennis ball every time at 100 yards. And because you're shooting at a live critter, all that thing has to do is take a half a step to get another acorn, and you're immediately in its hip. You're in the back of its gut. So, you know, you, you owe it to the animal, you know, Absolutely practice, have fun. It's great to have these sites that are capable of going, you know, 100 yards, 120 yards. I'm not trying to not let people shoot that far. But when it comes to getting in the woods, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to reel it in big time. You know, there's very, very, very few people, whitetail-wise, that shoot something beyond 40 yards. I mean, yeah, you see some of it, but, man, the percentage, every yard as you go, you know, beyond – 35 yards, the percentage is going down, down, down. And I can't help but think it would be the same thing out west. Granted, uh, I know a mule deer is a little bigger, and an elk certainly is a lot bigger. But nonetheless, you're shooting at a live critter on the side of hills, bad footing. You're not on a football field. I mean, there are a lot of variables to where you are going to screw up. So um, I'm like you. Let's hone your skills to where you can, one, get closer or call the deer in or, or you know, stalk closer and or be extremely be a killing machine from 50 and under and then worry about you know beyond 86 yards because uh, that's a small percentage of anything that you're going to shoot but i'm like you i don't want people not to shoot because we have get togethers around here with all my friends and you know these guys are that that, uh, that are you know they're, they're basically they work all the time they don't get to shoot and 
when we started having, um, you know, I got 18 or 20 animal targets out through the woods. I figured we'd all be shooting under 40 yards, which is absolutely great. You know, realistic hunting. Every one of these guys, they're wanting to, they're wanting to shoot 50, 60, 70, 80 yards, and they're never going to shoot at a deer like that. I mean, they're never going to shoot that far, or never, never have. But it's so fun. And then when we do have you know, the times that we say, okay, guys, nothing under 40 yards, you know, I mean, nothing over 40 yards, man, they're dialed in, they're, they're tight, but practice, you know, practice extreme, and it makes the others, but just don't, you know, have realistic goals to yourself, you know, because I, I can promise you, like, like, as much as I practice and shoot, whenever you get up in a tree stand, I mean, and you see, you know, deer out there walking around, you're like, and I pray to God, I don't have to shoot past 40 yards. <laughs> I- I can tell you on the in the whitetail side of things, especially um, you know me heading down uh, a guy Brian Broderick. Uh, he owns uh, Day Six Arrows. I hunted with him down in Alabama quite a bit, and I I I'll be a hundred percent honest. Uh, Eighty and in on an elk that's feeding, I have no issue under the certain circumstances. Again, I'm with the context of it's feeding. It has no idea it's there. I'm not worried about shooting an animal or excuse me, shooting an elk, 80s pushing it, but certainly 60 and in. Like I'll take that shot all day long. On a whitetail where you're from, I shot one and that that thing was seven feet from my arrow and it was a 56 yard shot. We we measured it, right? Like we had it on video, seven feet from my arrow and it did not know when I shot. Like it did, it, it was not looking at me. It just heard the bow go off. And I was like, okay, uh, well, I'm going to keep it under 30. I, I literally, I was like, oh, you know, this is years ago. I was like, holy cow. Where with elk and mule deer, they're just not as cagey. Um, I mean, some can yeah. be, don't, but whitetails are a whole different breed. I mean, they'll straight yep. belly flap the ground at a 20-yard shot. Like, you know, I got to the point I was aiming mid-body at the bottom of the stomach, Um at 30, 20 to 30 yards because they were dropping into it, pinwheeling them. It, they just get hunted a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, and and you know, they don't know they don't know what they're reacting to. They just they just drop. I mean, I always aim at the top of the heart, meaning if it doesn't drop, I'll hopefully I've made a good shot and I, I take the top of the heart out, but I've still got, you know, six to eight inches of vitals that it can drop into. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, Texas, you, you know how they are in Texas, so, uh, you need to reel everything in. Definitely, you know, a 35-yard shot at a whitetail in Texas, is that's tough, man. I mean, that is hard yeah. to gain confidence <laughs> something, and it ain't there whenever your arrow gets there. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little – I don't want to keep you on too, too much longer, but I want to talk a little bit more about that extension of the bow, being a better killer, things like that, and put, put it into a little more context when, like, you're talking about that 280 280- – foot per second cast of that arrow, knowing what branches it might hit, knowing, let's say that, uh, you know, some people might disparage this, you know, you've got an animal and uh, I can see half of the body, right? Um, I'm in the high country and it's a mule deer. Some people might say that's an ethical shot they're not going to take, but under certain circumstances, I'll drop an arrow in there. The thing is you have to know your bow when you have something in front of it that you're actually still you know, if you're putting your pin an inch into a log, knowing that that animal is eight yards behind the log, that that arrow is going to drop in or, you know, knowing that you're going to arch over the top of a branch, 
things like that. And having the confidence, let's say you're shooting through an aspen grove at an elk and you don't have um, a lot of room between the trees, right? Like you're shooting through a tunnel. A lot of people, they'll start bearing down on that tree, looking at it and they'll just shoot the tree. But all of those things, different angles, side hills, you know, bad footing, those are the things practicing that are going to make you far more lethal than an extra 15 feet per second. Exactly, and or researching and trying to buy the the next best thing as an attachment to your bow. Yeah, you're right. Spending more time behind the bow and gaining confidence and kind of knowing the uh, it definitely holds true in traditional. I know you're well versed in traditional archery, and you know, and I've dabbled with it quite a bit too. But you learn the cast of the arrow, you learn uh, the bow, you become the arrow, and uh, and I and I believe that you can do so with the compound as well. Just like you talked about, you can't see. Like, I'm, I'm a fixed pin guy, meaning, like, um, I, I'm shooting the option sight this year. I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. I've, I've not shot a mover in quite some time um, just because of uh, commitments that we were with uh, uh, the, the company that we were shooting sights didn't offer that. And, uh, you know, I'm a mover guy from way back shooting tournaments. So this year I've got the best of both worlds, and, and I'm absolutely loving it. However... I can I know that when I come to when it comes to hunting and, and it comes to fixed pins, um, you know I'm going to be a, a whitetail. I'm going to be mainly fixed pins. And the beauty of fixed pins, which I'm not trying to sell, you know, uh, sights are totally opinionated. You know, it's just whatever you have the most confidence in. But you know, this particular sight, I'm I'm really liking it because it you got the best of both worlds. But I can honestly say about 995 percent. I'm going to be shooting fixed pins, and I do that because of it's nice to know that you know, like if you, if the if the animal's at 42 yards, I can take my 40 yard pin, and you can kind of see where you're going to be. You know, like if there's limbs in the way, you can you know quick reference look up, see if the 30 yard pin's going to clear that limb that's hanging over, and or you can put your 40 yard pin on the animal that you like you were saying is you know cut in half by a side hill, and where you're aiming at the vitals is actually into a hillside, but you know that you know, that your your arrow is going to, you know, have the trajectory and cast right over it. There's a lot to be said with knowing the capabilities of your bow and how it's going to be. And, uh, you know, that's that's what you've got when you have a fixed pin sight is you have those references. And it's really nice to know that, man, I don't know how far that deer is. I know I range find that tree, and that tree was 35 yards. He's inside 35 yards. You throw your, you throw your pins up and you look, and you can see that you're 40 your 30 and your 20 are all in that. I mean, even though you do want to tell people to aim really, really, really hard, there's a confidence boost in a nanosecond to know that three of my pins are in that animal. Now all I got to do is just hone it in and pick a spot and then stare at that spot. And I would tell people to do that as well, like you were talking, shooting through a pine thicket or aspen forest or anything like that. Don't get caught up on the oh, hell, I hope I don't, you know, I hope I don't uh, hit one of these trees and focus on the negatives. Try to stare at the spot because at the at the end of the day, once you've chosen the yardage, chosen you're going to take the shot, the only thing that you can control is executing a good shot. And a, an a absolutely great shot will make up for any, a lot of the other flaws that you may have because you have a lot less chance of hitting it is if you let your whole shot execution go to nut city you are going to miss whereas if you'll stare where you want to hit and you know be decisive and aggressive with 
with your shot process, it, it will greatly in, um, affect your accuracy and make you more accurate and help you with, um, you know, confidence. And if you'll do that throughout practice and put yourself in those situations in practice, uh, it's just going to gain your confidence and your accuracy by leaps and bounds as you see how the cast of the arrow and how well your bow combination and yourself perform. And, and it's not too difficult. Like, uh, you know, when people are setting bows up, like you'll, um, you know, you'll hear people say I had a bow, you know, whatever that brand or model or whatever was in 2018. And man, that should have never got rid of that bow. Um, generally I have found like when people are looking for new bows, they don't take into consideration um, maybe that that specific bow they're talking about had a, a certain string angle. Maybe it was only 33 inches axle to axle, but it had giant cams, so it felt more like a 38 or, or whatever. There was right. something about that one bow that kind of sung to that specific person. Again, I like the string angle on my face of something that's closer to 38 to 40 axle to axle feeling from back in the day. So now that may be closer to 36, how that crosses my nose, corner of my mouth, things like that. Um, talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, when people are looking, you know, as far as draw length, string angle, when people are looking at getting a new bow, uh, and getting it set up for them, what's going to be more forgiving maybe for one person more than another. Yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's funny how similar you and I are like a like uh, some of the, my most favorite shooting bows are in that 38 to 39, 40-inch axle-to-axle. And I always look for that, you know, as far as the apex of the string and how it connects from my anchor point. That's what I try to look for. When when people talk about the axle-to-axle of a bow, there's more to, con- you know, a lot of people think that, well, I shouldn't say think that. It's, it's obvious that a longer axle-to-axle bow aims better. Um, and that's the reason why a lot of people shoot it because it's almost like um, it's easier to balance, like you would uh, if you was a tightrope walker. You got a longer, you know, a, a bar to help balance. The longer it is, it's just easier to aim. As well as what's equally important is the apex of the string and how it, you know, cross references where you anchor with your release, corner of your mouth, tip of your nose, how it uh, uh, affects your facial uh, structure and stuff. There's a comfort factor there, and also it dictates how far away the peep side is away from your eye. So all those things are um, um, affected by that. So, yeah, there is a there is a sweet spot for everybody. I don't know if it, it, everybody goes to that, but I'm like you. I, I try to achieve that and have had better success with longer axle-to-axle bows from a forgiving standpoint and just, just fitting myself, period. Um, you got to spend a lot of time with bows. I would I would encourage people to go to... Uh, you know, their your your local pro shops and try to shoot as many as possible. Something that the shorter axle to axle bows, the the apex on the string is tighter. Therefore, uh, there's even with a D loop, there's quite a bit of tension on the knot there, or can be. And then also uh, because the way it fits your face, you can present facial pressure. Um, a lot of people don't talk about that, but facial pressure and the way you anchor. You'll see a lot of guys that are anchoring a little deep on their face or back on the back side of their jaw or neck, and then they're allowing their face pressure to really dig in on the string. And I know the, the redneck, you know, uh, thought process is like, man, if I've got a good hard anchor, 
I'm going to do the same thing every time. Well, you know, I mean, logically, you would think that's the way it is, but what you end up doing is you put a lot of facial pressure on that string, and at full draw, a string doesn't have much tension in it on it at all, so it's real susceptible to left and right tension based off of your facial pressure, and as soon as you cut that arrow loose, it's going to push the bow away from your face, and that string is going to track back and forth, back and forth, all the way down, so you'll never... Um, I'm sure you've dealt with this. Whenever you've had someone that has a lot of facial pressure, you're, you'll never get that tear out. It, it's always going to show up as if they've got a really weak arrowed spine, uh, a, a weak spined arrow, but it, in actuality it's facial pressure, and it won't allow the string to correct itself by the time it gets back to the, the relaxed static position. So, yeah, whenever considering that, you know, a longer axle-to-axle bow is more accurate and more forgiving in most cases not to say that you know the shorter ones can't be shot good especially with shorter draw lengths but i always use it as a rule of thumb if someone is 29 inches of draw or longer try to stay you know like a, a at least a 32 or 33 inch axle axle bow or longer uh, someone that is under 29 can get away with some of the shorter bows um, if if they'd like to try that route but um, if you're 29 inch draw, um, I try to stay at least 33 inches axle-to-axle or longer. Yeah, and when you look at the axle-to-axle, you know, or that string angle, the apex like you talked about, um, repeatability is a big one when you talk about peep fade. Um, Are you doing okay on time? I said we were going to get off a minute ago. You doing all right? Dude, I'm fine. If you want to keep talking, I could I could talk for hours on this. I love it. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So no, no, that's cool. Okay, it's good info, and I'm 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 you know I'm glad I got you on. We can talk about this when you repeatability from uh, again, like if you have a rifle and if the distance between the scope, you know, when you get the buttstock, you get that up in your shoulder, and the distance between your eye and that reticle isn't set up for you target acquisition can be a problem. Um, that's not the greatest analogy, but you want, especially if you're trying to shoot offhand jump shooting or brush shooting, you want a rifle that everything centers up and the distance between that scope and your eyes, a, a big part of that. With archery, it's not much different as far as repeatability, except you have to worry about peep fade, um, whether that be left, right, or down, meaning you're, you're creeping out of the peep. The anchor point, that string angle, you want something that is really, really... So if what I'm saying is if you have a really steep angle and you almost have to duck your head down because that V is so tight. So you put your knuckle under your ear, but then you have to lean your head forward. Even if your draw length is correct, that can happen and it's not as repeatable because that string angle is not marrying up to your face and everybody's face is built, built a little bit different. So that's one thing, repeatability, but the next one is that peep fade at longer distances up and down hill, centering your peep into the scope housing. So you want to kind of take it from there and talk about those alignment portions of this and some of the issues that people will have, why their sight tapes don't line up sometimes, you know, meaning they're fading, things like that. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of people, um, it, it is a lot of, it is like a rifle scope. Uh, I shouldn't say a rifle scope. I should say like iron sights because you're, you know, you're lining up the rear sight, which is the peep sight, to the pins at the front, and you're you're trying to line those up. And it's real important. A lot of people just think like, man, no matter how I hold my head or where I anchor, as long as I'm looking through that hole and I see the pin, it's going to hit where it has to. Well, you you have to worry about, you know, your your 
back hand is anchored to your front hand and you know hand torque in the front makes it susceptible for that arrow to go off so even though they are anchored and you are pushing and pulling and you are steady because you have opposing forces um, you know what you do in the back between facial pressure and or hand torque in the front uh, will definitely make the arrow not hit where you know behind the pin so you want everything to be in line like you had mentioned but it's real important to have the right size peat sight and or the right size aperture and even if they're not exactly the same at least sight your bow in and try to shoot with the same sight picture every single time because you know you can be off just a little bit and you'll see the difference in those at um, at longer distances something another thing that people don't talk about and I'm sure you'll agree with me on this too is like you know you know draw length is measured from where your head is in between your shoulders and like you know like if you're standing up straight your head is square with your shoulders and you look to your left you know that is your draw length and then where you anchor based off of the apex of the string the type of release that you're shooting where you want to uh, anchor and the d-loop length and the release length that is a different measurement you know so I like to break it down into this you have your draw length which really shouldn't change you know basically from your quarter corner of your mouth to the you know the tip of your nose that telemetry or that triangle is always going to be the same based off of your bow arm that is draw length and then once you get to that anchor point of the corner of your mouth through the length of the d loop the length of the rest the the re the release and where you decide to anchor in the most comfortable and consistent spot that is what i call anchor length and you can adjust either or i see so many people that the bow will be too short for them so then they actually um to get the draw length they lengthen the d loop or lengthen the release out and they barely can reach the trigger all of these things have to be built to where they're extremely consistent so that you can be machine like um you know you don't want to sacrifice like man i can't get to my anchor but I, I like the way my hand is on my release and i don't want to lengthen my release and i don't want to put a longer d loop on there so they they lengthen the bow and then they end up getting too much facial pressure because they're trying to make the bow adapt to where they want to be with their anchor length, whereas the correct thing to do is leave the draw length where it's at and then adjust your D-loop, uh, the length of the D-loop and or the length of release, assuming you can do that without straightening your finger out because you want to make sure that you're pulling the trigger or uh, you know thumb release, whatever type of release you're shooting. You want to be able to uh, execute it without straight fingers. You want to have a straight pull behind it so that you can, uh, you know, do a, a correct pull through and or back tension style re release with it. So I would highly recommend people not to manipulate their draw length into their face to accommodate a draw length or anchor point. Make sure that they do that through their release and D-loop. No, and when when people are, um, and I, I, I don't want to confuse this anymore, the easiest way to kind of sum up some of what we're talking now is basically the longer your draw length, the longer your bow needs to be. The shorter your draw length, the shorter the bow can be. And there's diminishing returns on 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 either end of that. But I think when somebody walks into a a pro shop, um, you know, to get their, you know, their bow set up, you know, one of the things that gets talked about a lot is hand shock or the noise of the bow or things like that. But the things we're talking about kind of get overlooked at times. Um, but they're, they are very, very important for, for accuracy. What bow are you shooting right now? 
Um, actually, I'm shooting the Hoyt. It's the uh, Z ZR. It's the Z1S. It's the uh, it's their fast bow, and and um, they're it's 350 feet per second. The reason I chose that is because um, it's only an eighth of an inch shorter uh, brace height than the VTM. It's a 33-inch axle, so it's longer axle to axle, um, and it's it's quite a bit more speed because uh, you know now that I'm having to shoot mainly sitting down, um, I, you know I, I wanted something that's a little more comfortable and I can manipulate. It gives me options having that fast of a bow, meaning I could back off the pounds if I need to, and or I could shoot, uh, manipulate my arrow weight if I need to. It just I, I just wanted to play with it. And another thing is is um, I'm a fan of I, I like holding a lot I like holding a lot of weight, meaning I like um, I'm not one of the guys that like the 85% let off. I've always been a you know a 65 70% guy from way back in the tournament days executing back tension. And this cam has a shorter valley and it's you know quite a bit more efficient. It doesn't you know doesn't draw quite as smooth. Therefore, you know that they make a lot of the VTMs or the you know, a lot of the flagship bows are built more for comfort for, you know, the guy coming into the shop. So this is a more of aggressive cam, but um, I, I, I kind of like that, you know. Um, I, I like that style of shooting, so it feels more uh, tournament style. So uh, it's it's doing real well. And the biggest thing is, like, you know, I don't talk about it a lot, but what we've covered today is the apex of the string that seems to be, you know, just just right for me. I I think I would like a a little bit longer axle to axle, but I sure am liking this being a 33. It seems to be well rounded. I'll be hunting out of a lot of ground blinds, so I don't need to get extremely excessive in uh, axle to axle. Um, so um, it, it it seems to be working really really well for me. I've been happy with it so far. Now that's good. Well, cool. Well, um, we should probably hop off here. Where can people, um, you know, tune into what you've got going on, follow along, that kind of stuff, learn from you? Yeah, um, social media is, you know, T-Bone Outdoors, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and then, of course, we post uh, tips and such. You can find them on Realtree.com and BoneCollector.com. We're always posting stuff on their YouTube channels from time to time, so... uh and then, you know, I, I still do quite a bit of podcasts and stuff like that. So I'm a little bit of everywhere. And then, of course, our television shows on the Outdoor Channel, Bone Collector. Um, if you, you know, want to see some of all this redneck tech stuff we've been talking about put into action, <laughs> you can see it all Bone Collector. Oh, cool. Well, uh, T-Bone, man, I really appreciate you hopping on okay. here. And, uh, yeah, keep me good luck this season. Keep me posted. And, yeah, we'll get you back on, I'm sure, in the next few months. Well, hey, uh, man, it sounds good, Aaron. I always enjoy uh, chatting with you. I appreciate you having me on and, uh, you know, keep doing doing what you're doing. I mean, not to, you know, kiss your tail while we're on here, but you're doing a fantastic job and, um, uh, you know, educating folks and, you know, being a wealth of knowledge. Um, you know, it's what drives me and it's my passion, and I can see that you're uh, you're wired exactly the same way. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate you having me. I'd be, be glad to talk anytime, man. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good day. You, buddy. All right. Bye bye. Whether your hunting passion is western big game, Midwest whitetail, sheep hunting, waterfowl, upland, or a mix of everything, 
Black Ovis is where you'll find hunting gear that performs and stands up to the demands of your hunt. If it's not a piece of hunting gear we'd use, it doesn't belong on Black Ovis. We earn your loyalty with wicked and fast free shipping, unmatched customer service, hunting gear and field knowledge, and a selection of hunting supplies that is the envy of any hardcore hunter. Black Ovis is your home for solid hunting gear. Give us a call or check out the website at blackovis.com and use the code KAFARUCAST10 on your next order to save yourself 10% off your purchase.